Welcome to The Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm your co-host, Michael Brandt. And we're excited to have our first Skype guest today. He's Professor Khan Stau, a professor of cognitive neuroscience and psychology with Swinburne Institute of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. He's also the director for the Center of Human Psychopharmacology. Um, you know, broadly, you know, his research interests include understanding human intelligence and cognition from both a psychological and biological perspective. Um, and I'll let him dive deeper into that. But I want to just make a personal sort of introduction and a connection and to tie in, you know, how we, you know, all came together here. Um, a couple years ago, when Michael and I first started looking at the space of biohacking and nootropics, some of the most interesting research was on one of the nootropic herbs, Bacopa Muneri, one of the main components of one of her products. And this researcher from Australia, you know, Khan Stau was, you know, authoring, you know, and doing some of the most compelling research in the space. Um, and some of our science team, Sumit and Rob reached out and, and started engaging, you know, just from a, you know, understanding who the, all the interesting researchers were, were in the space of. Um, and, you know, we were able to finally meet in person in Chicago earlier this year at the American Psychological Science Convention in Chicago. And now we're happy to have you join us on our podcast. I mean, it's, it's funny to sort of connect in the intellectual space before sort of connecting in person. Yeah, so, well, thanks. I'm honored to be your first Skype uh, caller. Um, yeah. And it's great that um, you guys have such an interest um, in, in this area and um, I'm really interested in the science behind it. So, um, you know, obviously I love talking about research and about how these things work and what we need to do and um, um, it's great to find you guys who are, have the same sort of interests. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and and yeah. Khan, I can tell you what, what got us interested in the space was the idea of wanting to be smarter. If we think about the hardest working people in the in white collar jobs, you know, you're your students, your designers, your doctors, you think about people in these jobs as being equivalent to Olympic athletes in terms of wanting to optimize their output. That's what really embarked us on this path. I'm curious to hear from you. What embarked you down the path of wanting to, to study and understand neuroscience and, and optimization there? Yeah, so look, I've always been interested in um, a couple of areas of, of psychology called, um, one area is called individual differences. And this is the idea that um, uh, people show differences in traits like um, um, ability and, and cognition and intelligence. Um, also things like personality as, as well. But um, even as a child, I always wondered why people were different, um, why some people were smarter than others and why some people learnt different things. So um, as I went through university, I became very interested in understanding that the sort of brain behavior, brain cognition, brain intelligence um, uh, nexus, if, if you like, and started wondering about um, if we could uh, understand the, the biological basis of something uh, like intelligence, whether we could actually improve it. And um, it's a really important point for, for all the reasons that you've, you've just mentioned, that you know, uh, human intelligence is such an important trait in our society. It depends on uh, you know, your, your intelligence uh, dictates the sort of job that you, you get, how well you go through university, um, the sort of doors that open for you, the opportunities. Um, and just imagine if we could improve um, society's intelligence by 
half a standard deviation or, you know, um, seven or eight or ten IQ points. What sort of society are we living in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a concept we like a lot, right? Right, like, can you basically, if you meta improve the tools and the productivity of six billion, seven billion people by 1%, I mean, across all that people, that's so much leverage in terms of improving, you know, output essentially not not just output but just the quality of life um the sorts of discoveries the inventions the cures for diseases we could we could come up with um you know i, I just think it would be just an amazing place so and 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 the other side of that not just improving intelligence but helping people who are having trouble with uh their cognitive capacity whether it's as we get older we see cognitive decline um, it just with age, um, whether it's uh, kids with learning disabilities and, and, and other issues, whether it's intellectual disability, um, or whether it's um, really difficult diseases like dementia. Um, these are all diseases that have very um, strong impacts on our intelligence and our cognitive capacity. So if we can find out um, the, what the biological basis is for cognition and intelligence, then Maybe we can do something about it, and that's really what um, our center has been trying to do for for a few years now. That's that's really great. It's a very noble cause. Before well, we dive yeah, into more, yes. uh, you know, of Arj's questions, we actually had a couple uh, questions from our audience. They, you know, we gave them a sneak peek that we'd be talking to, uh, you know, an expert in intelligence. So Patrick uh, at just a web guy on Twitter asks. An obvious idea would be to talk about things that enhance intelligence, but even more interesting thing is what we should not do. So, for example, what are things that we do day to day that have a negative effect on our intelligence in the wrong, long run? And happy to hear your thoughts. We also have some of our own, you know, ideas there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so I guess where do we start? There's so many things to do, yeah. Um, and it depends what you mean by intelligence as well. So um, there, there are different, obviously different types of intelligence. We're sort of narrowly focusing on the construct of cognitive intelligence and uh, today, obviously. But um, if, you, if you even narrow down on cognitive intelligence, it's a, it's a huge area as well. We can separate cognitive intelligence into you know, verbal intelligence and nonverbal intelligence into learning into what we've learned, our ability to learn, spatial processing, memory. So there's quite a few different things. Um, there's also things we do that um, acutely make us not as smart. If we don't sleep very well, I think sleep is, is an incredible uh, predictor of uh, cognitive performance. You, you go and, and try to uh, do your job after just a few hours of sleep, it's, it's very difficult. Um, our nutrition is incredibly important as well. Um, Perhaps not so acutely, but chronically can have uh, long-term effects. Um, exercise is is a big one as well. I think recreational drugs, like you, you know, alcohol, <laughs> I think is an obvious one. If you're absolutely illicit drugs, yeah. um, can can be uh, very impairing. Um, you know, anaesthetic has has shown to to really impair uh, people's intelligence uh, long term. Um, so there's there's lots of things up. Like can really affect um that's interesting so like you know you know having too much anesthesia that you know it's not just an acute effect that it sort of adds yeah. up over time yeah. was that a hmm, that's yeah interesting. um you know and and, and uh, you know um it... in uh, certain sports uh you know any injury to the brain can can really have long-term effects as well so 
Yeah, I yeah. think I think that covers I think the the broad things. I mean, I think it's almost like the inverse, right? Like those are things that people would say, "Hey, yeah. focus on sleep, focus on nutrition, focus on like some good exercise, avoid, you know, hard, you know, compounds that are hard for your system." Well, look, if you think of the brain as being um the most important organ and and uh you have to sort of feed it, um and uh, it has to be able to to work its uh, peak capacity. I mean, it's the in terms of uh cardiovascular function it's the, the the most greedy organ in terms of its size for oxygen and so if you impair um, oxygen delivery to the brain it's not going to perform very well so um, and, and uh, so you know cardiovascular right. health is really important exercise is really important um, but there's you know there's not one thing there's there's all sorts of things and then there's you know the, there's the other side of things is is about um, nurturing your brain from a psychological perspective as well so yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, just to jump in here. So the second question is actually pretty much related to what you're just about to dive into. So just shouting out Sergio at Sergio Quiros SV. He basically asks, you know, a lot of people possess high intelligence but can't take full advantage of it. You know, beyond nootropics, you know, what are other biohacks that can help solve issues of low energy, bad eating habits, tiredness, grumpiness? So sort of like the opposite of Patrick's question, you know, and you're mentioning... Yeah. You know, exercise sure so there's there's obviously the another part of uh, intelligence uh, which has gained a lot of traction over the last probably two decades called emotional intelligence and it really it follows from a lot of research in what we call effective neurosciences which is really identifying um, uh, the sort of pathways and um, issues around emotion in, in the brain and how we understand and manage emotions and so it's pretty obvious that uh, humans are not computers. We're sort of irrational beings, really. And um, our ability to, to think clearly and to act purposefully really does also depend on, on, on the emotions that we experience and how we manage our own emotions. So we're finding in schools that, you know, children that are, have very high IQs but are not able to manage their anxiety and, and uh, even manage other negative emotions such as you know, anger and frustration tend really not to do as well in their exams, um, I guess what you would call SATs, um, uh, as they should in terms of their IQ. So, and, and we also see the, the other side that um, kids with somewhat um, average to slightly above average IQs do better at school than we might predict based on their IQs because um, they have really good study habits, uh, they manage their emotions, they experience positive emotions. They make great relationships with others and learn from others. So our emotions are very important. Um, and people with anxiety disorders and depression, you know, will really not be able to take advantage of their, their cognitive intelligence in terms of performance. It sounds like like the biohack is like, let's not discount yeah, EQ, right? Like I think when a lot of people think about just hard intelligence, it's like, you know, just raw output of numbers, just, you know, solving equations but like the soft side of, of what makes us human controlling our emotions sort of directly correlated to our performance in iq style tests yeah. so that's i mean i think that's a helpful you know approach and, and, and thought as all of us are going out and, and improving ourselves yeah, look, that's right i mean look if you think about working in an organization for instance then you know iqs are, are really important we go to university perhaps um we compete with other students um we get into an organization, but uh, moving up the organization is really about how we engage others, how potentially um, how we show leadership um, and all these other non-cognitive um, 
variables, if you like, um, are, are really important in terms of our happiness and success as well. So um, our IQ, our cognitive intelligence, incredibly important. But uh, as you say, let's not discount um, some some other aspects of our functioning. What are what are some things that people can do or avoid doing to improve that sense of emotional intelligence? Which, by the way, one one paper that you wrote that was particularly fascinating. I wanted to just underline for anyone listening is that emotional intelligence correlates with life satisfaction. One of your one of your biggest papers that that connects the dots there. So it's not just a, a notion that having good emotional intelligence leads to a better life, but it's actually been studied with rigor uh, by by you, by by Khan, our guest here. So I'm curious to hear from you. What are what are things to do or things not to do? To improve that sense of emotional intelligence. Yeah, so there's, um, I guess there's a, a lot that we don't understand in, in this area, but there's a lot of research papers now by people right around the world that showing that um, individual differences in emotional intelligence predict a wide range of important workplace outcomes, scholastic outcomes, well-being, life satisfaction, even some clinical disorders as well. So uh, they are important. Um, but unfortunately, because it's such a popular area, there are a lot of um, people out there who sell tests and sell development programs and things like that, which are probably not very evaluated. But in psychology, you know, we've had um, a really long history of great research around clinical disorders and around emotions and those sorts of things. So really being able to... Um, experience positive emotions rather than negative emotions is really about the quality of your thoughts and, and uh, cognitive structures. So, you know, we can choose to think about uh, in different ways about different situations. Um, and uh, the, the actual thoughts that we have really dictate the emotions that we experience. So having uh, better thoughts about uh, different issues will uh, help us transition from those more negative emotions to more positive emotions. Um, but there's, you know, a wide range of, of um, different strategies you can use to improve your emotional intelligence. If you think of emotional intelligence uh, being comprised of different components, like understanding the emotions of others, so there are, there are things you can do that might be able to help you understand other people better, engage other people. Um, you can improve your listening skills and eye contact. Um, other dimensions are your ability to persuade others and to express emotions effectively, um, your ability to manage your own emotions um, and to to uh, make decisions based on emotional information. So all those things are sort of theoretically different and therefore there are different strategies for those different um, dimensions, if you like. Yeah, I'm curious, like, you know, obviously something that's sort of becoming more popular, something, you know, meditation, or I think just in general, just like self-awareness, self-reflection, you know, setting periods of time to like journal or to, you know, write down things you're grateful for. I mean, I guess these are all sort of tactics to hit what you're talking about, which is how to sort of rewire thinking to focus on sort of the positive spin as opposed to focusing on the negative spin. And I guess it's it's like all very personal to figure out, you know, exact regimens. And I, I guess it's also very hard to study clinically the, you know, the optimum protocol. But I guess like the general thrust is focusing on thinking, you know, in structuring your thoughts in, in positive ways. Yeah, that's right. So most ways. of our work these days is, is working with schools. So we're trying to work with, with younger kids because we think that's a sort of sensitive period to, for them to develop um, 
greater emotional intelligence. So we use all those sort of strategies um, in our structured programs with schools around self-awareness and engaging right. with others and listening to others and uh, restructuring thoughts. And um, some schools have introduced mindfulness, um, which really does help. Uh, I know we probably our generation, we didn't really do too much of it, but uh, it really does help and students, children really love it as well. So I, I think I think there's a broader awareness, I think broader acceptance for these concepts. I think that you know, I think in, in one era could have been could have sounded more, you know, new age, but I think the data is showing that, hey, yeah, there's some real compelling things here. So I think there's a lot more acceptance within our community, within our listeners that are experimenting with all of these, you know, tactics. That's right. And and, and and it's not hard, it's not difficult. I mean now with um you know, you can download an app on your iPhone and uh, you can you can practice it for a few minutes a day and, and, and start the day that way and, and, and be much more in tune with yourself and, and, and not feel as stressed. Absolutely. Yeah, and the quantitative results there are what's really interesting. The fact that it's demonstrated to show an effect, I think is what's really interesting. And, and what it's, that's one of the defining aspects of biohacking as we know it, is the ability to, to test a hypothesis against a null hypothesis to say that this, this thing is having an effect versus... It just seems to feel like it's a good thing to do. Right. And so it's it's really on the shoulders of people doing this important research that we're able to institute and, things like mindfulness at the national or state level that you can't do that unless you are able to make strong statements about the effect. Yeah, statistical significance, getting the right, you know, RCTs going. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. I think when a lot of people, you know, think about nootropics, um, you know, what you know after you know studying you know compounds like bacopa you know what are some of the you know highlighting to our audience some of the interesting results from a quantitative approach with you know bacopa i know that you know a lot of your research has shown that it increases you know working memory capacity um and both you know sort of over chronically just can you you know sort of highlight and, and walk through some of the most compelling results that you've seen across bacopa but other compounds yeah so the where I work is the Center for Human Psychopharmacology, as as you introduced before. So it's about a group of about forty of us. Um, and you you met a few of them in Chicago, the conference. But um, there's probably about uh, a dozen clinical trials on different substances going on here all the time, um, and they're nearly all focused on co improving cognitive function um, across different ages and, and the lifespan. But uh, the vast majority of them are are actually um, plant-based extracts or nutritional products. Not, not all of them. I mean, we've, we just started um, a low-dose THC study here. We've done a few illicit drug trials and that sort of thing we talked about before. But, you know, we've, we've looked at red wine and um, chocolate, tea, uh, EGCG, um, things like ginseng, curcumin. Bacopa, as, as you mentioned before, has been a big focus of um, the research in our centre um, and bacopa is, um, and what do they call? It comes from Ayurvedic medicine, so it comes from India, um, and uh, it's uh, probably the the oldest known herbal medicine. Actually, it dates back more than four thousand years. Um, and more recently, probably in the last um, fifty to seventy years, um, a huge amount of re research, mainly in in vitro and in animals has been conducted by the Indian government, 
um, and they funded um, literally hundreds of studies looking at, well, uh, what does this um, extract do? Uh, what are the mechanisms? And how can we make the best extract? So um, I guess one of the big differences between plant-based extracts and pharmaceuticals is that a pharmaceutical is, is always going to be the same. So if you make it the same pharmaceutical, um, it's, the structure is going to be the same. It's going to have the same potency. But with a plant, there are hundreds of components in a plant. So if you want to extract something from a plant, you have to know what are the active ingredients um, and what's the mix of things you want to put in the tablet. How am I going to grow it? Quality control, all those sorts of things. So plant-based medicines are much it's kind of like wine, right? Like a certain varietal of wine from Napa, you know, a Chardonnay versus a, you know, a Cabernet. There's different qualities. So in a sense, right? Like how do you standardize like Bacopa, right? I think that's why like the Bacchus ratings and all of that that we, you know, you know, highlight in our products. Well, that's right. You you might want to might want to buy a Chardonnay, <laughs> but um, you right. go go to a wine store and there's a right. hundred different Chardonnays and. And you can buy a bottle for two dollars, or you can buy a bottle for five hundred dollars. So, what what is the difference between? I mean, it's still Chardonnay, but they're grown differently. Um, they're looked after differently. They taste different, even as well. The same thing with plant-based extracts. If you buy a plant-based extract for two dollars, um, it's probably not going to be as efficacious. It might not even have the same compounds in it than um, the same uh, as a bacopa that costs twenty dollars for thirty dollars. Right. It's grown differently. It's extracted differently. Um, uh, and I think one of the other important factors is that there can be a buildup of unintended things like lead or other heavy metals. If it's that's that's always a risk that you might you might not just be getting actives. You might be getting some unintended things true. in there as well. That yeah, I mean, sure. we obviously test for uh, thoroughly. So that that all costs uh, money to the company in terms of quality control and 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 doing regular assays in terms of what's in it and uh, ensuring that things that you don't want uh, to be found in it is no, are no longer in it. And so that's, a, that's the thing. I think that's a common um, problem for consumers is they don't know what a quality product is in this area. So anyway, I probably digress a little bit, but um, um, the, the work on Bacopa, I think it's a very um, established area. There's literally hundreds of papers, scientific papers, and probably over the last 10 years, there's been a bit of a push to do human trials. Um, and there's probably been, um, I'd say, 14 or 15, uh, maybe more, um, really good random randomized control trials with um, specific extracts of Bacopa. And probably about 13 out of 15 of those studies have shown efficacy um, and high degree of safety as well. So... We know that Bacopa is, is pretty well tolerated, pretty safe, um, and the data is starting to converge to show that it's quite efficacious. Um, and now, In what areas? I know, you know, just you know, just yep. as for, for you know the education for our audience, I, you know, efficacious. I think in terms of like um, working memory capacity, um, you know, some adaptogenic sort of anti-anxiety effects as well. Yeah. So the, the key areas that have been, I think have been shown to for Bacopa to be efficacious are improving working memory, improving long-term memory learning consolidation, improving processing speed, and probably reducing anxiety or stress um, to improve cognitive functioning um, at uh, stressful times. 
And generally speaking, what are the mechanisms of action there? How does how does that happen? And and how does it as you're taking it more and more? Why are you not becoming tolerant to it, or why are you not building toxicity in your system to it? Because those are those are standard for other things that that's a person might eat. Yeah, that, that's true. So look, um, it works completely differently than say a pharmaceutical. So most pharmaceuticals that are aimed at improving neurotropic functioning are basically aimed at neurotransmitter function. Okay, and we know that the the brain compensates for changes in uh, neurotransmitter activity. So the brain will up and down regulate receptors. So for instance, if you're trying to give up smoking, for instance, um, the, the, you know, the brain and you stop smoking, the brain will say, wow, we need, um, where's, where's all the nicotine gone? We need more nicotinic receptors and will upregulate nicotinic receptors for a period of time. So um, but COPA doesn't really work in the same way. It works probably in a more sort of chronic way. It's um, multifaceted um, in terms of its effects. So it will affect inflammatory pathways. It will affect oxidative stress. It will affect some neurotransmitters such as um, acetylcholine, which we know is important for learning and processing speed. There's some evidence that suggests that it might affect beta amyloid. Some evidence suggests that it might chelate heavy metals. Um, there was a really interesting um, animal study showing that increased synaptogenesis in the brain. Um, and we're about to replicate that, try to replicate that um, in humans here right. in, a, in a new trial. We were combining um, Bacopa and uh, cognitive training in older people. Older people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the interesting yes. thing is that Bacopa also has, you know, a, a cover, the trials have covered a broad swath of populations from like healthy young adults to older people. So I think that's especially interesting for, you know, from a, for a nootropic perspective, because it's obviously a lot easier to see effects on, you know, folks with dementia or folks with disease and, you know, prove some, you know, see some effect there than on you know, healthy human. Yeah, adults. so that's true. But if you look at the historical use in India for thousands of years, um, it's not just been in older people, it's been in younger people as well. Um, right, it's been, exactly, which is read, why it's exciting, yeah. I read that Vedic scholars would take Bacopa to memorize texts. Yeah, so I think because it acts in so many different ways in, in the brain and because there's a whole range of different molecules in Bacopa extracts um, that, um, you know, it, it can affect... Uh, the brains differently depending on age, and so we're currently doing um, um, a trial with with kids with hyperactivity and inattention. There've been a lot of trials in in India on that topic with bacopa. Um, <clears throat> How did you get into bacopa? I, I remember when we were talking in Chicago yeah. that you got uh, keyed in on this compound through uh, you know a, a rugby a rugby player's accident. Can you walk us through that anecdote? Yeah, so it's a really interesting story, actually. I was um, at a conference in Sydney giving a talk on a, a ginkgo trial we had just completed. And um, I received a phone call from uh, a woman who asked to come and, and, and talk to me about um, um, a new substance that um, she's been giving her, her nephew. And it turns out that um, her nephew was quite a famous professional rugby league player in Australia. And uh, unfortunately, had a, a very serious um, head injury, and um, all the specialists basically said that um, uh, really high likelihood that he would die. If he didn't die, then he really wouldn't be able to function after that. 
Um, and this woman um, was, it turns out to be actually professor of um, mechanical engineering at the University of Sydney, which is a really big university in Australia. Um, and uh, she uh, toured the world to find substances that could help her nephew. Um, and uh, she eventually found Bacopa and uh, gave, gave it to uh, her nephew. And her nephew has basically made a, a, a full total recovery. Um, and uh, I, I met uh, her nephew and he seems perfectly fine to, fine to me. And, uh, and uh, so she was so excited by this finding that she decided to bring it into the country and sell it um, and to make it available to, to others. Um, and, of course, um, our, our equivalent of your FDA, we call it the TGA here, um, said, really, this is not any evidence, and uh, if you want to make any claims, you'll need to do trials. And so she uh, pleaded with us to do some trials. So um, we did some trials, and we found um, that um, after, after a few months um, that um, all the people, well, the, there was a significant improvement in, in memory, um, attention, concentration, processing speed. In our first trial, um, this was also replicated at um, another university independent to us um, in Australia. Um, then we did another trial. We found pretty well the same thing. Um, this was then replicated um, by a US group and, and by groups right around the world. And, um, and then a few years ago, um, went over a very bright um, PhD students who's now a postdoctoral student in um, working with the Framingham people in Boston, Matt Parze, um, wrote a review, a systematic review, and, and found that there was quite consistent evidence to show that um, Bacopa improved cognitive function. Yeah, and I think another result that I think you were a co-author on showed that, you know, in comparison to, you know, pharmaceuticals like modafinil, the effect sizes were comparable with, you know, Bacopa, which is like, you know, super fascinating because... Yeah. You know, one like the side effect profiles for Bacopa are a lot more mellow than you know modafinil, and but you're seeing you know similar magnitudes of effect sizes, which is a fascinating result. Um, uh, we could really talk for a long time. I think it would be really good. Is there any way we can um, resume at some stage? Yeah, it looks like we're our time is up here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this. I think the content here is awesome. I mean, I think this would be a good yeah. know, teaser, you know, piece. And I think right. we'll get a lot more questions from our audience. I think, you know, the, the stuff that we cover, I think a lot of the EQ stuff is also fascinating, right? We could spend like an hour just talking about the EQ results. Um, let's jump like, on a part two. Yeah, let's, do a, let's pen on a part two. Let's like, okay. you know, sort of cut it here. And, you know, you know you're busy. And then, you know, we'll, you know Zill will reach out and, and schedule a, a part two. Right. Look forward to it. Let's do it. Cool. Cheers. Yeah. Cool. Take care. See you guys. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Bye. Take care. Have fun. Bye. Bye. That was interesting. Yeah, no, I think it was it was awesome to uh yeah, we were reading we printed out all like literally like a lot of papers, but like a lot of con styles papers. And it's just cool to, you know, start you know what we have in we're, we're you know the original reason why we reached out was to start running clinical trials with his group right like we're running our first clinical trial with a maastricht university group in the netherlands you can actually find that those details at clinicaltrials.gov and track that progress there and that's focused on more of an acute effect where con styles group is focused on sort of chronic effects including bacopa we have um a bacopa stack with rhodiola and uh alpha gpc rise 
which is called Rise, which synergizes a lot of the effects of Bacopa. I'd love to, you know, if you know, in our in our sort of off-site conversations, one of his recommended stacks is a combination of Bacopa and Rhodiola. So I'm actually curious to, you know, continue the conversation in perhaps a part two about other compounds um, and other synergies that you know are promising. Yeah, it's interesting to see how he's studying this space. There's, this space. Bacopa has been used for 4,000 years, and there's been new findings in the last 10 years about it. And I think that there's this focus on intellectual academic rigor around what the results have to show. But I also think above and beyond that, it's this the incentives are lining up where people want to study enhancement and improvement right. where it's not just that someone is sick someone's like needs therapy to fix something but it's it's saying hey what's something that you can take habitually that will improve your baseline operating level right. basically yeah improve your operating system if, yeah. if you will so it's it's we're on the shoulders of giants it's really cool to see that it's not just us but it's a lot of people on the other side of the world and, and all around that are yeah about i these think it's like it's, it's not even just on the shoulders let's all let's let's gather all the giants together in the same room which i think yeah something that i'm one of the most proud things that i think we're working on is flying the flag of biohacking flying the flag of nootropics high and proud and, and and bring these people together because you know a, a lot of interesting data and research out there let's pull it together let's highlight it let's let's get the message out because i think that you know the the net positive we can you know affect on and, and change on society is so positive as as professor Stout mentioned in the beginning right like improving the productivity the output intelligence of people by a couple percent i mean it's, it's something that we've talked about a lot as well like the network of humans if each node of human is smarter the whole entire network is more valuable yeah i think also like something that he thought i thought he mentioned was interesting was this whole notion of eq as uh, a, a strong correlate to life satisfaction and and, and 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 also just intelligence yeah um i think that's you know something that I'm sure our listeners what will want the, to dive into. What was the question from Sergio again? I think it was a really good question. What was the exact? It was the. It oh, it's so like because other biohacks. Um, other biohacks you could do to so like a lot of people are highly intelligent. Let me just pull up right here. Yeah. Um, but they are rarely ever able to take full advantage and, because of diff difficulty focusing. I think that's interesting, right? Because I think that. That's the kind of EQ aspect, well, right? I think I think there's a couple things going on there with that notion. The question, Sergio's question, which is a good question, is people are intelligent, but they sometimes can't really wrangle it. They're distracted, or they're anxious, or or they have trouble focusing. And I think that it's that this notion of intelligence. Sometimes we think we equate intelligence with a very narrow gap of cognition or like analytical thinking. Uh, but I, th but what's coming more and more into focus is, hey, if someone's having trouble with the people that they're working with on their team or people are having trouble focusing on things that th that this is actually also part of intelligence this is part of the larger umbrella of, of intelligence where intelligence isn't just like iq and sat and and very like that stuff is really important right i stu studied super hard for that stuff i think that 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 type of intelligence actually is extremely powerful but there's but also 
emotional intelligence is is important too and, and to be able to kind of wrangle your own it basically helps channel the iq side right if you're, that's a really if you're interesting way to think about it like screwed up you can't actually turn on your intellectual you know mammalian brain it's just your, your reptilian brain's like freaking out um i think to that point i i like sergio's question of you know what what can someone do if they if if you or someone you know feels like you're very you know intelligent in that normal sense of just high horsepower, but you're, you're having trouble kind of putting it to use. What, what do you do? Right. I, my quick answer is I think that things like discipline are actually really undervalued. The like rote discipline, like doing something and sitting down and doing it. I think a lot of times people that we consider to be very high IQ smart have can, I, can have a hard time sitting down and focusing and getting, getting the thing done. Cause it's, that's very, that's very rote. And a lot of times people who are less quote unquote smart have no problem sitting down for a long time and getting the job done. So uh, I think that in order to build that sense of discipline, we always talk about fasting. I think fasting is really interesting where if you can force yourself to eat some pain and force yourself to do it and keep to it, uh, if you can do that on a weekly basis with fasting, or there's other ways of building discipline too, but fasting is just a really good one. If you can force yourself to eat some pain and build discipline, I think that that helps you to kind of wrangle and and put your intelligence yeah, in the right direction. I, I think that honestly, that this this notion of a spark that that triggers something is just like a false mythology, right? I think if you talk to some of the most creative people, you know, just like it's like the, the quote, you know, I'm, it took me twenty years to become an overnight success, right? Right? Like they're constantly churning and thinking about these concepts, like. I'm sure, you know, Einstein was constantly just doing mental intellectual experiments, thought experiments, seeing how, you know, light waves were bouncing around when traveling at super, fa- you know, fast speeds or when, you know, gravity was super strong. Um, and yeah, then you have that insight, but it comes from that discipline that wrote, hey, we're going to put in a lot of hours. Because I think that a lot of people are smart, a lot of people have discipline, and it's really like merging that two together to truly do something interesting, to truly do something phenomenal, which is you know, high bandwidth at a lot of, over a long period of time produces interesting results. Yeah. Um, and I think one other quick answer to Sergio's question is just work with other smart people. I think that that's often discounted because the, we have this idea of like the lone genius person, but I think working with other smart people is probably one of the best things. Yeah. I think more do. and more there's just like so much knowledge to absorb and like the corpus of like what is even known is bigger and bigger than ever it exponentially grows right so to like not be able to like take advantage of bantering and, and conversing and, li- and absorbing new ideas yeah, is like a disservice to like yourself right all like those you're, are... you're not exposed to the, like the, the the catalyst the the medium to even like spawn new ideas yeah and a lot of those aspects of emotional intelligence like motivation or discipline those are actually really helped by people around you right by by talking through things by by riffing a lot of the aspects of of emotional intelligence like you can't really just control that on your own by like willing it. it's not an sat problem where you can just keep like scratching at it with your pencil until it's solved it's like a lot of these other aspects are actually better solved by being around other people to because people affect each other and and there's that i think especially with things like i mean i just know anecdotally from just running nutribox right like all of us have ups and downs mood swings good days bad days and having like you to like fuck you know have awesome energy or you know all of our colleagues with awesome energy helps buoy like the just the ups and downs of just normal human rhythms and yeah. i think that 
having a team, have a support group around you. I think just a test yeah. like the EQ I, factor of like, hey, you know, controlling up of the ups and downs of the, the chaos of life. Yeah, well, so I, I, I yeah. think a lot of times there's, there's a fairly popular notion of some, some social scientists did a study where they found that like, if you want to predict what someone is earning, you can look at what their five best friends are earning. So if I don't know how much money you make, I look at your five best friends, average it. That's a really good predictor of how much money you make because if all your friends are like bankers, lawyers, doctors, you're, you're probably no idiot. You're probably making a good salary. If your five best friends are uh, making less, you're probably making less. So, but the, the, exact same through, the exact same notion is true for intelligence. If I want to know how smart you are, it's like, okay, well, the five people that you spend the most time with on a daily basis, it's how smart are they? Yeah, anyway. so, you know, thanks, Patrick, Sergio, for those awesome questions. Our producer, Zill, is going to reach out and send you uh, a thinking cap. Um, let's keep the questions coming in. They're a lot of fun to answer. As you know, uh, you know, Khan also, I think, dived in and had fun answering those questions. So we'll get him on for part two. Uh, and so, you know, please ask away. I think we've covered a, a broad swath of topics there. And let's dive deeper into it. Um, yeah, just to quickly wrap up here, yeah. yeah, you know, we're, you know, on YouTube, we're on SoundCloud and we're on iTunes, also on Google play. Thanks to the, to, uh, I don't remember who requested it, but thank you to the person who requested <laughs> Google play. We're on four different platforms now. Um, until then, uh, we'll catch you the next episode. Thanks. Thank you.